Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. If I did not get to meet you last week, and my name is Stephen, I'm excited to be here with you. And uh, your pastor, Aaron, will be back next week, uh, which is exciting. Uh, if, you've, if you're new to City on the Hill and you've not had a chance to meet him, um, you're going to really enjoy it. Aaron is uh, so, so passionate he loves Jesus. Um, he like he when he teaches, it's like I want to run through a brick wall. Like I'm like this guy loves the Lord, and it's so contagious. And so um, I do want to also just say, just for a brief moment, uh, the joy and the benefit of sabbatical. Um, we believe in this as a network of churches that we do sabbatical, uh, not reactively but proactively. So we don't do it when someone burns out. We do it prior so that your pastors and their families come back renewed. And we believe in renewal. And so um, you are going to get a pastor and family who are recharged and ready for the next season of ministry. So I just want to thank you uh, and for the leaders here for being willing to give him this sabbatical and this time, he and his family just recharge and refresh. So thank you for that. Uh, It's good to be back with you again this week. I I won't be back next week. Aaron will be back. Um, So if this is a reason you're like, I don't know, it'll get better next week, I promise. So he'll be back. Um, but um, I had the, opportunity, the joy to preach God's word for you today. And last week, um, got to kind of start and kick off the second half of the book of Genesis and looking at Abram and his family. And, and the, the story is really narrowed down to this one man and to this one family and how God is going to bless the whole world through Abram and his family. So we got introduced to him last week and we saw how God called this man who was not pursuing after him, but rescued him out of that, called him and said, I'm going to bless you and make a great nation out of you. Uh, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you this land that you and your descendants will live in. So he calls him to this. He promises to bless Abram. And then Abram's response is, Pretty, pretty incredible. He just obeys God by faith. He, he trusts God and then acts in obedience. And so this is a picture for us, an, ex, an example of faith. And we would all do well to have faith like Abraham, that we read God, his, his word, we take it as at face value, we believe it, we trust it, and then we obey out of it. And so Abram leaves what is known. He leaves his home. He leaves comfort. He leaves the known for the unknown, believing that God would bless him and help him flourish in the place he had called him to. And so as we left last week, we have this great example of faith. So it may be surprising for us to read our text today or hear this read and see how quickly Abram moves from faith to failure. He moves from faith to failure at record speed. And it's almost like you're reading this and you're like, bro, what are you doing? What, what is wrong with you? And, I, and I, none of us probably feel like we're at danger of doing what Abram does here. Like, I'm probably not going to get in trouble and tell people that my wife, Amy, is my sister. Like, I don't think that's a temptation for me, right? I don't think any of you probably have that same temptation. And it's easy for us to look at this text from the outside. It seems so ancient. It seems so foreign. It seems weird. Um, it, it, and it... it it kind of, we were like, I would never make this mistake, but if we approach it humbly, we realize we're not a whole lot different than Abram. Because when we make mistakes, we do a lot of the same things. And when was the last time that you failed? It could be a big failure, it could be a small failure. 
Now, thankfully, no one wrote about it in Holy Scripture to be read by billions of people for thousands of years, right? You know, that you made that mistake and yelled at some guy in traffic about Dunkin' Donuts. Like, no one wrote that down about you. And failure is not just when something goes wrong. It doesn't mean that something could go wrong in your life that's out of your control. Failure is when we fail to do what God has called us to do. We fail to believe God at his word and live in the way that he wants us to live. And so what was your last failure? You don't have to call it out. This isn't share time. You don't have to tell me what it is right now. Maybe it was at work that you knew you were just procrastinating on that deadline and you just didn't live up to the expectations you had set for you. Maybe you just completely lost it on a loved one and you said some things that you really didn't mean to say. Maybe it's moral that there's just something that you have struggled with and you cannot believe that you fell into that. And so the question is, is when we fail, what causes us to fail? Now, sometimes you can pinpoint this on one particular event. Um, Many of you are probably not old enough to remember this, but in the 2004 presidential uh, primary for the the Democratic Party, there was a man named Howard Dean. Um, Howard Dean was running neck and neck with John Kerry, and uh, and they were like they were. I mean, they were thinking Howard Dean might take it. Howard Dean loses the Iowa caucus, and he's talking to a group of supporters, this giant rally, and he's talking about they're going to go here, we're going to go to New Hampshire, we're going to go to there, we're going to go there, and something comes out of his mouth that has been called the Dean scream, because he was trying to say yeah, and he goes ha. And a political career went down in flames in that exact moment. It was hilarious. So sometimes you can pinpoint that failure to one decision. Sometimes those decisions, it's a series of decisions. A blockbuster video, which predated Netflix, was the way that you would get a, watch a movie back in the late 90s, early 2000s. You would leave your house, you go into a store, you pick out a physical copy of a movie. Now, Blockbuster made a bunch of boneheaded business mistakes because in the year 2000, they were given the offer to buy Netflix for $30 million. That's it. And then over the years, they got, they got behind on the whole streaming thing and eventually their entire business fell apart. But really, when you boil it down, whether it seems like it's one mistake or many mistakes, is every failure that you and I make, big or small, can, comes down to two reasons. One is we lose focus on what matters most. And secondly, our decisions are driven by fear. We lose focus on a vision of what matters the most, and then our decisions become driven by fear. And you see this in Abram's life. Abram loses focus and then makes a bunch of fearful decisions. But also, as we look at this story, we see how it informs our failures and how God works in the midst of those failures. So firstly, let's look at how Abram lost focus on the Lord. Abram lost focus on God and the promises that he had given them. And so we saw last week how God had promised him land and and a name and a nation that would be birthed out of him. Abram obeys him and he goes to the land that he's called him to. But what caused Abram to lose focus? Look at chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. There was a famine that wrecked the land, meaning that there was not a shortage of food. And in the ancient world, this was a very common thing that could happen because a a hot wind came through or there wasn't enough rain or enough water or irrigation. And the way that you would eat in the ancient world was whatever you grew or your neighbors grew and you could trade with each other 
was the food that you had. There was no supermarket. There was no, there was no DoorDash. There's no Instacart. There's no ability to get food to your door. And I think the closest you and I can really get to understanding this is like, is the supply chain, right? During COVID, it was always about the supply chain. Um, you know, we don't have toilet paper for three months because of the supply chain. Um, it, it can imagine being in a, in a world where all of your food is devastated there's no backup plan. There's no food assistance program. And you're trying to figure out what to do. But not only was it a famine, if you look at the end of verse 10, it says that the famine was severe in the land. So this was a, what were dire circumstances. They're, they're looking around. There's no food around them. They're hungry. And so they, the way they respond is they go toward Egypt. Now, Egypt was known in times of famine to be a place of respite, a place of rescue and rest that you could go because it was very, very fertile. And on the surface, as we look at this decision that Abram makes, it seems like a perfectly reasonable decision to make, right? You lose your job, what do you do? You start looking for a job. You should do that. Sometimes if you're not locked into a place, you're like, well, I'm just going to throw my resume out anywhere I can get it, somebody to look at it. And if I've got to move, I've got to move. It seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do. The perfectly natural thing for them to do was to go down to Egypt. But what do you notice that Abram fails to do here that he did twice in the passage last week? Look at chapter 12, verse 7. So he, Abram, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him from there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. So Abram stopped, he prayed, he worshiped the Lord, then made a decision. He makes a decision seeking the Lord's counsel. But then you see it again in chapter 12, verse 8, where it says, And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Abram stopped twice before making a decision before considering what was natural, before what was considering what was practical, to stop and to worship the Lord. And what the text seems to tell us by its silence here is that Abram didn't do it in this, this time. He never stops to worship, to consider, to pray, to seek God and get guidance when God clearly had shown himself to be willing to provide in the past. Alistair Begg says that he could have prayed for food. He, he could have prayed for help. He could have prayed for rescue. He could have prayed for rain. He could have prayed for provision. But Beg goes on to say that trusting and praying go hand in hand. We can say we trust God all day long, but we put ourselves in a position to receive from God and, and for Him to rescue us. Life hits hard sometimes, and Abram lost focus on God and his promises. But what did God just say a few verses earlier that we looked at last week? Five different times in the passage from chapter 12, verse 1 through 9, it says that God would bless, God would make, God would give. God promised to provide everything that he needed but when hard times and difficulties come into our lives, it tends to shift our eyes away from God, away from His goodness, from His glory, from His power onto our circumstances. And what we tend to do is we tend to trust God for the big stuff. God, I believe that you can save me from my sin, but I don't believe that you can provide a job for me. I believe, God, that, that you have my eternal destiny in your hands, but I don't actually believe that you have good for me today for my daily bread. We trust God with the big stuff, just not the details of everyday life. 
that God would get us from Sunday to Monday in one piece. And what we think is we think we're on our own. In moments like this, where we're faced with decisions that seem perilous, we look at them and say, I've got to turn to my own wisdom and my own decision-making. Now, listen, human wisdom in decision-making is good. Like, you should make good decisions. God has given you a brain. All of us, He's given us a brain. Um, He's given us the ability to think. He's given us the ability to reason. He's given us the ability to discover and discern and make good, wise decisions. However, human wisdom is limited. Human wisdom is is not sovereign. It's not infinite. It's not faultless, especially when we're making these decisions on our own. We're making these decisions in isolation where it's just you in the mirror and you're trying to figure out what to do. But God wants us to come to Him, but many of us feel like we are left alone to make decisions by ourselves. And we look at a story like this and say, man, it would be really great if God would just speak to me like He spoke to Abram. You're driving down the road, you're on the tee, and God just says, get off at this stop. It would feel really nice if God did that sometimes, right? It'd feel nice if God would just come down from heaven and say, this is what you need to do. But do you realize that you actually have more access to what God has said than Abram did? Because how many times did God speak verbally, audibly to Abram? Four times across multiple decades. Four times. He spoke to him four times decades apart. So what was Abram doing most of the time? He's doing the exact same thing that you and I do, trying to discern what God wants, seeking after him and praying and saying, Lord, give me, give me, give me some insight for this decision. We have way more access through God's word than even Abram did. I want you to think about your last big decision. Did you take time to stop and pray? Did you take time to seek God and and not say, God, here's the decision. Will you bless it? But God, here's what I'm struggling and wrestling with. I want to submit myself to your will. Did you get counsel from other Christians? Haley was talking about being in a community group. One of the biggest blessings about being in a community group is you get to share life with people who can help you wrestle through big decisions, that you're not alone, that wisdom comes through counsel of other people. But our tendency often is to be like Abram. And what we do is we move forward on what seems prudent or practical. And we don't ask the question, God, does this give you glory? God, does this fit into your will for my life? When it gets hard, do you ask God to provide for you? How do you tend to make your decisions? Abram was called by God. He was called to a specific calling, to a specific place in a specific time, yet he doesn't seek God's will for how to live. What he does is he sort of slaps God's will on the end of an already made decision. And that's what many of us do. So often we do that. We believe that God doesn't really care about the little decisions that we make every day or the seemingly moderate decisions we make every day. And so we kind of just say, well, this is what I'm going to do, and I hope God blesses it. But what did Jesus say? He said that we don't have to be anxious because the Lord knows every hair upon our heads. He cares about us with such intimate detail that he wants to give us guidance in the decisions we're making. So how do we focus on God as we try to make wise decisions? Four practical steps. First is to seek him in his word. God is not ever going to tell you something that contradicts with the Bible, ever. 
as you're praying, seek God in his word. Seek wisdom from his word. Now, not every decision from the Bible is cut and dry, black and white. Sometimes it's a principle and sometimes it's a a broader ethic we've got to wrestle with, but seek God in his word. Secondly, submit your plans to him. Don't come with that already made decision and then ask God to kind of bless it. Say, Lord, if this isn't what you want, change my heart. And if it is what you want, then Lord, I pray that you would bring it to pass. Thirdly, share the process with others. One of the best things that you can do is bring other people in on the decision process early. Before the decision is made, ask them to help you wrestle through it. And then lastly, stay firmly rooted in his promises. If God called you to a place, he will provide in that place. The relationships that God has sovereignly brought into your life, he will give you the grace to give out to others and give grace for you to receive from others. If you're wrestling with a tough decision, God will give you the insight and the wisdom that you need to make that. So Abram loses focus that causes him to make some really poor decisions. So secondly, Abram was driven by fear. Now, don't think that the timing of Abram's plan, this deceptive plan he comes up with is a mistake. Look at chapter 12, verse 11. When he was about to enter Egypt, so he, he comes up with this plan as he's about to enter into Egypt and all of a sudden it hits him. He's like, oh no, what have I done? What are we doing here? I mean, anybody's ever watched the show Arrested Development? Uh, there's, a, there's a running gag in that show where Joe Bluth will say, I've made a huge mistake. It's exactly what Abram is doing. He looks at this and he's thinking, I have made a huge mistake. He is in it now and he feels like there is no turning back. And what he does in this moment, instead of crying out to God for help, is he makes a decision and makes a plan based out of fear. And fear can drive us to all sorts of deceptive motives and deceptive ideas and deceptive practices. Look at the end of verse 11, we see that he gives way to flattery. He looks at his wife, Sarah, and he drops the bass in his voice. And he's like, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. He's like, look, you're looking good. I know you've been riding on a donkey for several hundred miles, but your hair is on point, girl. It looks good. I'm going to need you to pretend to be my sister. He uses flattery in a way to get what he wants. That's a a new tactic. I've never seen that one before. When you're afraid that you're not going to get what you want, it's really easy to give give way to flattering words. Words that are meant to butter someone up in a deceptive way to get what you're afraid that you're not going to get. So he flatters her and then he tells a half lie. Now look, This is weird. I'm not going to lie to you. He says, you are my sister. Now, this is a half lie. If you look at chapter 20, verse 12, Abram actually says, she actually is my half sister. They had the same father. I know it's weird. Um, Ask Pastor Aaron about it when he gets back. Um, But the Bible shows people as they are. That's one thing about the Bible is it doesn't clean up the mess. And in fact, later on in the the Mosaic law, Moses Moses actually uh, writes a law that talks condemning this. He says, you should not marry your sister. This doesn't lead to human flourishing. But God also came to Abram after they were married. It was a very common practice at your time to marry a sister or like a half sister. God can still use these broken and messed up people. 
So it's not prescriptive, it's just descriptive. But the point here is that he uses this situation to justify his lie, to justify his deceptive plan. He he didn't technically lie. She wasn't technically his sister, or was technically his sister. He uses to deceive. And the reason that half lies work is they're believable. It's like right now, if I were to say, hey, I noticed that your cell phone screen is cracked. You'd think, oh, what a nice guy. He noticed. But if I don't tell you that I'm the one who dropped it, that's deceptive. I'm trying to use a half lie in order to get out of trouble. But the problem with a half truth is a half truth is a whole lie. And the reason that a half truth can be so harmful or a half lie can be so harmful is that when you ask someone to trust you, you're asking them to be vulnerable. You're asking them to open themselves up in such a way that they will receive the words that you give them and trust you with them. And so they're incredibly harmful when it turns out to be a manipulative lie. So he used half truths, but then he tries to rationalize this. He says in in verse 13, say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. What he's saying is, hey, look, this is going to work out well for both of us. Say you're my sister because if not, they're going to kill me. And and if they kill me, what's going to happen to you? This is going to be better for you as well. See, what fear can do is it can make you rationalize and and compromise on God's word. Everybody does it. It's really not that big a deal. I know the Bible says that I shouldn't do that or shouldn't live this way, but wouldn't God want me to be happy? God wouldn't want me to live without that thing. So it's okay that I do this or say this or compromise in this area. But the last way we see him do it is control. Look at verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So Abram was right. They saw his wife, they saw that she was physically attractive. And there's some indication from both the text and from history, the brother had some sort of say in how the sister could get married. If you look at Genesis 24, we see that Laban was the one who was responsible for giving Rebekah away in marriage. And so it's believed that this may have been a common practice. What Abram was likely banking on is that he could tell everybody no. He was trying to control and manipulate the situation that if any suitors were to come and to ask for Sarah's hand in marriage, he could just say, no, that's that's good. You know, Friday's not going to work for her. She's washing her hair. It's just not going to work out. He could control and manipulate the situation in such a way that he would not get into any trouble. But the problem with trying to control or manipulate is what happens when your plan blows up? It's like Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan so they get punched in the mouth. Here he gets punched in the mouth. He didn't expect in verse 15 for Pharaoh to take notice. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. What's the problem with Pharaoh? You couldn't tell Pharaoh no. He was the king. He was the emperor. Pharaoh could marry anybody he wanted to by law. And so now she ends up coming into his home. See, decisions driven by fear are never good decisions. So how does fear drive your decision? Maybe you're one of these people who try to plan it every little detail out. You're a spreadsheet person and you've got formulas on formulas on formulas. If you've ever been a part of the, the COA softball team, someone made a formula and, and they made a spreadsheet. And if you've ever watched baseball, there's all, there's all these metrics. There's OPS and batting average and all these things. They, there's, there's a COA value on this spreadsheet. 
where like there's, there's a, basically you have a numerical value to how good you are for the team. Some of us treat our decisions like this. We're gonna put everything into a computer and everything into our five-step plan. And if it fits inside of that, that's how we're gonna make the decision. Some of us are flatterers with our words. We are really good at using our words to get what we want. Some are good at half lies. And what you've done is you can tell just enough of the truth to keep people at arm's length from knowing the real you. Maybe you rationalize, it's not hurting anyone. It's no one really cares. It's not that bad. I deserve this thing. Or maybe you tend to manipulate and control the situation or others. But the problem with fear-based decisions and lies like this is they will wreck your life and other people because it is exhausting to try to be in control. But the Lord kindly allows our half-baked plans to fall apart. See, what Abram missed and what's easy for you and I to miss is that it's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late. It's never too late to admit that you're wrong. It's never too late to admit that you're going down the wrong path or making the wrong decisions or that that plan is just not the right plan for you. But, but the problem often is that confessing sin costs you. Confessing sin may cost you your reputation. It may cost you status. It may cost you even trust with someone. Admitting your plans are not plans that love and serve the Lord may mean that you lose out on time, energy, and money. But it's always worth it because the Lord promises freedom as we come to Him and rest as we come to Him. God, God knows your family situation. He knows your work troubles. He knows your desires. He knows all the things that keep you up anxious at night. Why do we think that the solution to our problems lies outside of his wisdom and will? He calls us to trust him. And what the Lord does is no matter how far gone we think we are, he promises to restore us and to receive those who come to him and put us on the right path. Abram had the opportunity to turn to the Lord, but notice what he does. Verse 16, Abram compromised for financial security. And for her sake, the de- he dealt well with, Pharaoh did, with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Now, back then, there were no banks. There were no, he couldn't write you a check. So Pharaoh pays the bride price for Sarai to Abram. And so the way he's got to flex is he's going to flex by having a really big herd. He's going to flex by having this entourage around him. And so overnight, Abram becomes a very wealthy man, extremely wealthy. And this part of the text may seem strange to you, It seems like Abram's deception and his worldly plan works out well for him. It seems like he did something wicked and yet prospers. But if you look closer and you read a little further on into the story, you realize that's not what happened at all. This actually cost him dearly. First of all, it nearly cost him his wife. He dishonored the one that he was supposed to cherish. He puts her in a dangerous and compromising situation And I guarantee that this shattered trust in their relationship. He abdicated responsibility to love and to care for his wife. And what this shows us is our decisions affect other people. Everything you do affects others. You may think it's all about you and all about your time and all about your priorities, but when we prioritize our own security and comfort over obeying the Lord or loving others, it will hurt people. One way we do this is just by isolating ourselves 
We do this by saying, I'm just going to kind of prioritize me and no one else. We hold ourselves up in our house. And, and look, one of the claims that I tell our people in our churches all the time, like the thing I hate worse than anything else is when you ask someone how they are and say, I'm busy. That's not a state of heart. That's just, that's the circumstances in your life. But we often claim we're busy as kind of a stiff arm. Like, don't ask too much of me. Don't ask me to be available. Don't ask me to be vulnerable. Don't ask me to do the one another's of the New Testament that tell you that you should love and serve and bear burdens. And if that is us, we need to either admit that we're too busy and do less actually and prioritize the right things or ask for God to give us a heart and desire to do his will. So cost him his integrity. Pharaoh finds out about this because he gets sick. Uh, Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And so we see that probably it was leprosy. She comes to his house, there's problems. He's like, it's no, nothing but problems that she came here. And so God uses this unbelieving person, an unbelieving Pharaoh to shame Abram. Look at verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? God used an unrepentant, unregenerate man to shame Abram, the one who was called to his promises. He rebuked him. He's angry at him and there's a stinging rebuke. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Almost like you should have known better. And he has him escorted out. Does the way that you live your life look like what you say you believe? When your unbelieving neighbors look at your life, do they see anything different or unique about the way that you live? That you are resting in the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus, or are you still trying to prove yourself through work and relationships and everything else? Not just that, but it causes strife with Lot, his, his nephew. And we'll see, you'll see this next week as you look at chapter 13 and 14, that they have so much stuff and so many people, and they, they can't get along in the land. So they actually, their servants are ready to throw blows. They separate and go, go apart. But maybe even the most heartbreaking is the heartache down the road, the long-term effect that it ends up having on Abram's family. Shortcuts often lead to long-term pain because about 15 years down the road, Something happens. See, we see here that Abram was given servants. And if you look at the story of of Sarai and Hagar, Hagar is described as an Egyptian servant, meaning that likely she came from this moment. What the shortcut that Abram gave himself to caused heartache for Abram, for Sarai, and for Hagar. And what it shows us is that shortcuts never work. God promises to provide, but we often settle and compromise. So where are you tending to settle or compromise? Is it cutting corners at your job? Is it, is it using people in relationships? Maybe some of you are, are right now you're dating and you're trying to figure out what does it look like for me to have a spouse long-term? One of the worst things that you can possibly do is overlook godly character. Don't shortcut what God desires for you. It would be better to be single for the rest of your life than to be married and not be married to a godly person. Marriage isn't the promised land. Following after Jesus and laying your life down, obeying and denying yourself is what pleases him. 
Maybe you just want to be further down the road than you actually are. You're trying to force it. Abraham here is trying to force the blessing of God that he promised. So we look at this and we see his failures and we look at our own failures and like, man, what do we do? Like, uh, this seems really hopeless. See, Abraham may have failed, but God's plans don't fail. God's plan never fails. God uses this, chapter 13, verse one. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. God uses this for his glory. He uses this to fulfill his plan because Abraham's disobedience doesn't stop God's plan, but it does lead to unnecessary pain for Abram and other people in his life. God is sovereign and and there's nothing that he cannot work through. There's nothing that you can do that's going to thwart the ultimate will and purpose and plan of God. However, you are responsible like Abram's responsible. But know this, God can still use us despite our dumbest mistakes and our gravest sins. God would use this family, all their stumbles and their, and their faltering to bring Jesus into the world so that Jesus could live like we couldn't live and could live like Abram couldn't live. While we may lose focus upon God and his promises, Jesus never did. What happened when Jesus was on the mountain and the devil was trying to tempt him with, with riches and with the world? He continued to keep his eyes focused upon his father. He always lived to please the Lord because he was not given to fear. There on the boat in the midst of the storm, Jesus is like listening to some white noise, sleeping, and he's just hanging out. He's he's, he's so at peace as everything around him seems to be falling apart so that you and I could have peace. Abram sold out his bride for his own personal gain, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus gave his life so that his bride, the church, could have everything, so that we could gain all the riches of his mercy. And what this means is that you can turn to Jesus to help you. You can turn to Jesus to guide you, and you can do so without fear because he always leads you to life, and we can live lives focused on God and his glory led by his Spirit. So what does this mean for City on a Hill Church? What if we were committed to live our lives and to make decisions not based on what makes us comfortable, not what makes the most sense, not what's practical or prudent, but what gives God the most glory? I I don't want you much like I don't want my own congregation to be people who make decisions here, but what gives Him glory? What if we were people who are more shaped by spiritual practices that prioritize time with the Lord than the rhythms of our culture? That we listen to the truth of God's word instead of the lies of our culture? That we give ourselves to Sabbath rest instead of endlessly running after purpose and meaning? What if we gave ourselves away for the sake of mission in our city? What if we loved and served our neighbors to the point that it cost us? What if we shared the gospel, even though it might be a little uncomfortable? And for you personally, maybe this morning you're wrestling with something that feels really heavy. You're wrestling with a decision that feels like it is beyond your control. Maybe you're just wrestling with the everyday details of life and you're just trying to get through this week. Know that because Jesus has come, he promises to give you peace so that you can make decisions by focusing upon him and you don't have to live in fear. Let's pray.